0: Play. Sneeze. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> well, I said it, you did it.
1: Hello everybody, welcome to OnBat Radio. Today we're in Launceston, we're speaking with Gabrielle Comerford. Hi Gabe. Hi Matt. Um, let's start how I always start. What are you thinking about or what are you working through? What's occupying your brain and body?
0: Um, I think right now... <laughs> um, I think I'm pretty occupied with kind of the, the, the physical stuff I've just done for the last week. Mm. Um, and just trying to mentally prepare for the next little project I'm about to dive into. Um, so I think, like, all of the new information and kind of from Paul and Christina about flying low and passing through, and, and their technique to shocked the body as well, which is kind of separate to mm-hmm. a little more aggressive, I think, than than flying low, passing through. And then also knowing that kind of that was just a taster for the next three weeks that we've got to remount their work mm. which is also weird because I think that there's so much other stuff that has been occupying my mind or well, that is still there as well hasn't gone anywhere but it's just taken a back seat at the moment like the work Caitlin and I are making and then the ideas that I have for other works that I want to make and they're all just kind of bouncing around in there
1: Do you want to talk about some of them? Or one of them? Or?
0: Well, I mean, I think there's been, there's a real ongoing thing in my mind that's kind of pretty continual for me around making work around mental health, because it's such, an, it's, it's such a personal area for me and it's something that I don't feel like we address very well here in Australia.
1: I reckon right, that's the fridge.
0: But, yeah, so Caitlin and I have a work that we've been making for, as Makeshift, for almost two years now, I think we've been kind of putting it together. Mm -hmm. We've already had one residency, well, at the end of last year down here in Tassie on it, and we've got one this year in Cairns, hopefully another one in Tassie. And I think each we're kind of edging closer and closer to feeling like we're ready to actually put the team together and start bringing that work out to the world. And then I'm also really occupied at the moment, I think particularly from this time at Stompen, working with youth, and even the mixture of age groups at Exposure last week, that I'm becoming more and more aware and interested in how ageist the Australian Dance Society is and how, how much I want to be a part of changing that because I'm so aware of how much I learn every time I'm on the floor or with a a dancer with more experience than me, and particularly those people of, kind of, who we see as our teachers, but how much more we can learn from them as peers than than as teachers. I think that exchange is really important.
1: How do you... Because that would be the same then for you as well when you're teaching people how do you facilitate uh, or encourage them to start seeing you as a peer rather than as a teacher
0: I mean I think because I'm still often on the floor with them yeah and it really helps that I'm like I'm learning just as much from them learning about it as they're learning about it as they go and and I think it's something that I, from Paul and Christina, which I think they kind of have picked up from David, that the, I, I really like something in the way that they teach that when you have a question, they do, they generally don't answer the question for you. It's like they put the spotlight on you and everyone helps you find the answer, but you've got to work through it in your body and find an answer. And then from once you've found an answer, then they will help guide you into what they might think is the correct answer, but there's that, that sense of always finding it for yourself and finding it with the people around you.
1: Mm. Yeah, an answer is really important. So how do you, oh, sorry.
0: I tried to sneak up on you. Do you guys know where my phone is?
1: No. No. You'll uh, to call it. It's all right. So if we're talking about being on the floor, um, I guess it'd be interesting to consider that so much of your practice is about being on the floor no matter what position you're in. Mm. Not physically, but <laughs> hierarchically. Yeah. Um, what, have you, what have you found about the best way to be on the floor and the best way to take care of yourself in that? Um,
0: well, I don't think I've found the the best way yet, <laughs> but I'm finding I'm finding ways, um, and I think I think particularly this last week has been so much about learning with a little bit of unlearning, but also solidifying that the the information like that thing of I have a lot of information in my body. It's different but quite similar to, to their information. doesn't make it wrong. It's just such a different aesthetics or different approaches. Um, but I think being open to being like, well, that's the si- this was, that was the situation I was in and I could keep doing it my way because my way works and it's so similar. But in this instance, I let it go and I try their way and it opens up a whole other world of possibilities and i think then then when i go back to do it even you know i go back to my stuff movement there's new information in there and so i think it's just like diving onto going onto the floor complete like open and that that idea of going back to a beginner as much as of as you can every time mm but but also not like because you can't go back to being a beginner. You the information is always there, but there's a refinement that happens. And I think this is like one of those. This is the the thing for me that is, has really shifted the last couple of years. Maybe it's just as I get closer to that thirty year old line. But like I think Krista Parkinson says it in her in a podcast. That she did on audio stage and they're talking to her about aging and her being like you know in her 50s now but her practice is performance mm. and that the analogy she kind of uses and i think that I've, I've changed it a bit but she talks about she kind of does this parallel of like a carpenter or a builder mm. and young builders or young carpenters start as builders and they're doing like fairly simple work it's really labor intensive they're kind of just slamming away at stuff for ages and it's like the older that like you know and then you jump to the other end of the spectrum you've got this like 90 a 90 year old woodworker carpenter who's been doing it his whole life he's not necessarily doing the same labor intensive work but he has so much more information in his body that the work he's doing is so detailed and intricate and articulate like you know he might spend an aware and aware yeah he might spend six months making one table Mm. but that table will be the most beautiful piece of woodwork he's ever created yeah because in a
1: way he's spent 50 years making that one table
0: yeah Mm.
1: and how do you uh, navigate being in a studio where you've got a little where you've got an amount of information and you're being asked to do something and you think there's a better way (laughs) or even um because dancers I think often fall into a subservient role um purely out of the nature of them being laborers or being more labor intensive their role is more labor intensive but um yeah it's like the rehearsal schedule is not set by the people who have to enact it yeah and then how to have those conversations and take care of your body in that
0: yeah well i think that's it's like always as long as as long as i'm finding as long as i'm aware of where my my edges are and like mm. the limits which you know i'm definitely not all the time it's why i have the amount of <laughs> injuries that i probably have is because i like to test and push those boundaries mm. but i think when i'm in it's that—that's the, the empathy thing. It's like when I'm in someone else's space and they're leading. I check out. I check my ego at the door, and if I, mm. and where I can, like you said, feel do feel that I can do it safely, I will. I'll, I'll whatever they're asking me to do, I'll try, and I will see what results come from doing that. And you know, at the end of the day, I leave, and I've still got my practice going outside when I leave that room, mm. and then so then it's like that. Digestion and absorbing processing of that information. It's like, well, what worked from that for me, what didn't? Mm. Going forward, when I'm in the then I go into the next person's, it's like I'm still bringing every bit of the last project and the one before and the one before in, which I think, like, I you know, having recently have having to update my CV, like, looking back at the amount of different people. I've worked for and with in the last few years like I feel really lucky because there's so many different bits of information and a lot like from peers to like people at the top to everything in between that there's so much learning going on always which I'm sure happens you know when you're in a company working for the same with the same people for the same person day in day out but I don't know, I have a pretty short attention span and the that idea kind of terrifies me of being stuck with one yeah. one thing, or one just, set of bodies. Just um, thinking that you know, actually. Mm, yeah. Yeah, because it's like getting thrown into a new kettle, like a new pot of fish every time. Every time you're like, okay, I've never danced, I've got to work out how to move with that body, that ego, that person. Mm. Where's my ego? What, like... always checking myself where I am in that situation.
1: And so we're back. Um, Gabe, I'm interested in if we're talking about teachers becoming peers and intergenerational learning and egalitarianism, (laughs) I'm also interested in inspiration and how we keep that egalitarian as well. Yeah, just... um, I'm keen to hear who's inspiring you with their work, or their mode of working, or the topics they choose to work on,
0: I or think, just the way they move. Yeah, I think inspiration's always been something like something that's I find interesting because mm. there there are a lot of people who inspire me mm. in Australia, but I don't find that uh, I don't find that that much of the inspiration for the work that I aspire to make comes from australia Hmm. um inspiration and aspiration
1: what are you aspiring
0: to i think probably too many things at the moment like i think i think i haven't refined that idea of what it is that i I am aspiring to because there i want a little bit of everything i want to I want to work on my pedagogy and I want to be a better teacher and I want to be a better sharer of information. I
1: thought you were about to say shaman.
0: I want to be a better shaman. (laughs) Look, that too, I think, you know. But I think from, you know, as a yoga teacher, I think I've started looking at the way I teach differently and I feel like that is starting to come across in the way I teach dance. But, I don't know, like, you know, I always think back to when I was at QUT and like middle of second year, like hit that point of being like, you know what, I'm done with dance. I'm over this nonsense. I don't like what I'm doing. I'm not seeing anything I like. Mm. I'm in the wrong place. And then I saw Gavin and Grayson do Lawn. And, and Sir Jane. No, and, no, and uh, Vincent Vince. Crowley. Crowley, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and like I saw that work and I was like that. And Ian.
1: Ian did, like, um, he was the composer, but he oh. actually had a little cameo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of yeah. the closet. Granditch. Okay.
0: But, like, yeah, Ev, like, so much about that work mm. started kind of a, a chain of events of inspiration for me. Like, from the way they moved, the the concepts, the, the trickery and the sorcery of it, the cockroaches in the bowl of cornflakes, oh. the the red cord up through the wall and through the skin the sense of this hot like you know I think like Spender Group had been working with in in Roadkill like that that sense of a bit of a horror film and I think it was you know then I started following Gav and talking to Gav more and, and seeing that lineage through Ultima Vez and and that German that sense of I always for me I always think of dance as being like quite body-focused, and I think often the heart and body get connected, and I think of, like, Sydney Dance Company and Expressions, and I think of... Then there's, like, Head Dance. that is very... Much more about, like, very conceptual, and I think of, like... I mean, Anthony's stuff is very conceptual, but also so geometric that it kind of sits across both. Mm. And then... And then there's work that is just purely... Human and guttural, and there's I I don't fit, I don't fit see work made in Australia that that really has that for me, and I think it's what and I think it's why we've you know why there's a fascination with Israeli dance at the moment because I think it is it's so ingrained in their in their movement and the choreograph like in Batshaver and Hofesh and Barak Marshall, um, like there is something guttural and rhythmic and tribal in that and i think but i think there's something so human about the way that it's approached by like jan Fabre as a like theater director and as and vim as a as a movement director Mm -hmm. and i think also that led me to you know that led me to down a whole field of inspiration and aspirations and has gotten me to a particular place. And I think just recently, I've shifted a lot more recently, 2013, kind of when I finally like got to go to Malaysia and start connecting to my cultural heritage. And, and now the inspiration that I'm drawing from connecting to this idea that I've always identified myself as half Malaysian or as, as, a, as a Malaysian Australian but it's only been in the last two or three years that i've had any idea of connection to what it means to be malaysian mm. and i think that's really changing my approach to things because i've always considered myself not white and i've always considered myself a person of color mm-hmm. but because i was essentially raised white mm. a lot of people don't like don't <coughs> see that they associate me as white and yeah so I feel like very i sit in this funny place in that world and so i I'm very much at the moment interested in how I bring that more and more into my art and which um
1: So how do you feel like your dance is affected by your self-identity of not white? (laughs) (laughs) Because I I think there's a lot of shame for white people around their disconnection from their body and their dance. Mm. Like, shame to the point of actually holding a wall between their ability to find it. And I wonder if it is like a double-edged sword of um being like well i'm probably a better dancer than a white person because i'm not white (laughs) (laughs) or if you as you were saying being raised socially and culturally white um does that mean you also danced socially and culturally white Mm. or or not is your genetic difference enough to feel a difference or is your self-identity identification difference enough to feel the difference yeah, physically and gutturally and tribally in the aesthetics of travel
0: yeah well yeah i mean it's hard to answer because i've never lived outside my body i've never lived without my yeah genetics yeah. but i i definitely feel like i have always even because, I, I don't know if it's because I always have known that half of my genetics, half of my DNA is Malaysian, mm. but I have always felt, even though I didn't know what that was, I've always felt like I had a connection to something that felt more, for want of a better word, organic or from the earth and more connected than I felt as the white society that I was living in. But that also, like, I think it also has changed changed a lot depending on where I live. Because I, I, did like the first few years of schooling up in Cairns, which was such a different environment. I was at school with no shoes, in footy shorts, and no shirt. Like, we didn't really have a uniform, and that was and that was normal at school. I, like, like I, I, was the Jungle Book kid at school. <laughs> like, like that was that was normal life. And then we moved to Toowoomba. Mm-hmm and it was cold and there was a uniform that had ties and leather shoes and like all of a sudden I was in this whole other world and I felt like that the sense of confinement that came with that and restriction I think kind of like you know later down the track once I got a bit older towards like middle or early middle of high school like like that's what I was rebelling against that's what like teenage me like angsty teenage me was fighting all of that Hmm. and I always wonder you know maybe it was just a changing of that you know the year like you know the 90s that that was that's what was changing because I know like I've been back to Cairns since and it's it's not the same jungle primary school that I went to like there's things it's changed there as well so you know maybe that's just about changing with the times and what is contemporary Mm.
1: yeah the cost of contemporaneity and almost the 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 cost of cosmopolitanism and the the uh, like aspiring to being worldly or whatever Somehow can really deceit your feeling of being in a place and of a place.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think also too that idea of civil like being civilized. Like, what a joke! Like, it's what a joke that <laughs> idea that that it, like we're better because we're civilized. I think. I mean, that's that's that thing that creates that separation, the us and them, with. Di- not not government like not, not being allowed to live off the country because that's not civilized or mm. not being allowed to live in an Amazonian tribe because it's not a civilized society or civilized way of life. Mm. Like they're still just discredits the idea that there is still social structure in place in, yeah. in any system.
1: I mean that goes all the way back to um, the, the barbarians. Mm. being the Mongols that (laughs) would wear pants so that they could ride horses and that was uncivilized to wear pants yeah Um, so it also feels very arbitrary yeah and there are some things that I can completely get on board with what civilization has brought which is a a in some ways an abundance that allows that allows us to agree that we disagree and leave it at that um, so that we don't we're not fighting over such scarce resources uh, physically, mm. so that you can grow into an old man and still have safety or still have a say. But then there's also the costs or the un un in, in essentials yep. of civilization, which is the performance of civilization. But it is m- more important for me to be educated than to appear educated. But I understand that if you see somebody, yeah, wearing um, a school uniform with a tie versus rugby shorts and no shoes, you assume that they're going to be be having a better education, um, which is unfortunate. Yeah.
0: I mean, and I think also that, yeah, we make those, like all of the little details, like having a meal. I always think having a meal with people is a really quick way to we make so many assumptions culturally about meals like you know eating people eat who cu- cultural cultures who eat with their hands versus who don't mm-hmm. and then particularly as western cultures because we do use utensils like I, the, the way people judge how someone holds their utensils like because we've come from this english heritage of like mm-hmm. the forks the, fo- the table is set you know Entree, literally. your oyster forks, and all of the <laughs> like, outside in. This thing on the left, that thing on the right. Like yeah, that, I think it's all the of those same with, um,
1: Chopsticks though, like you, it is more fine to hold them further back mm. than to hold them down close to the food. So I think it's across civilization. But I wonder how this all plays into your physical approach and self care <laughs> in studio as well, because there, there's a sense of. Uh, I guess the most poetic way to put it would be enlightened abandonment. Because you know, you you don't want to just be a dickhead, but you also (laughs) want to fill yourself with all the knowledge and information and safety and alignment pathways so that you can safely do what would appear to be a dickhead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because that kind of abandonment can generate and can be infectious but you need to like train yourself to a point where it's useful, rather than where it's yeah dangerous. Or...
0: I think that's that's something like I really, I t- I took away from the little bit of counter technique I've done mm. is like really I mean one finding some dance again because I think you know I I hit a point where I was much more interested when I was making in all of the other aspects. Like when Caitlin and I are making, we're both really interested in the visual kind of, the visual art aspects. And there's a section of the work that we're making that is essentially a light installation of us building lights with LEDs and glasses in the space. Cool. But um, that sense of finding the dance again, and I think it came from, there's something in the counter-technique of, that of knowing where alignment is and then how much more, like how far away from alignment and from the, that idea of safe, how far away you can go from it to come back through it to go past it again. And I think being reminded of that kind of, I don't know if it opened up new doors or it just reopened mm. doors that along the way of learning had got closed. Mm. And I think there was, yeah, there's something in the safety of that and... I, and coming back to movement for the body like what movement what movement feels good for my body and how can I do it better how can I do it bigger different smaller with different quality
1: mm. and then when making a show for others to see how can I do it in a way that uh, makes a viewer feel something
0: yeah which I think is you know I I think everything always comes back when I'm, when I'm making, when I'm doing, to empathy. Like I think the more empathetic I am as a maker, the more that it, it comes across to the or, the audience, or to other people that I'm working with. The more empathetic I am as a teacher, the more I can teach, and the more I can learn from teaching. And I think, I think that this idea that empathy means that you're empathy isn't about giving for me. It's like empathy opens a, a door or a pathway for two-way exchange and it, there's a sensitivity to it that i think i think we we can all have more of always mm-hmm. <laughs> mm.
1: what's your biggest hope
0: well i guess right now i felt like you know following on that my my hope is that we can all find more empathy for each other and for ourselves I think you know it's such a cliche but if you can't empathize and love and be connected to yourself then it's pretty fucking hard to do it two or four with other people and I don't know I guess I have many hopes for the work that I want to make and the impacts that I want to have. I want, you know, I want this work that Caitlin and I are making around mental health to have a, some sense of significant contribution to that conversation, to open dialogues, to help somebody, anybody, as many people as we can. And th- I want to make work with an older performer, so I can, that I can share and I can show the power of intergenerational work and I think, yeah, why not, why not dream, dream, aim big and high and fail along the way? <clears throat>
1: the thing about empathy is that it, it, as far as I understand it, it is a skill that you need to practice Uh, in the same way that you need to practice motor skills so that you can open your car door, catch a ball and pour a cup of tea. And if you don't practice those motor skills, you're seen as uncoordinated, you are seen as not having a skill that you need in daily life. And I feel like empathy is just as tangible if you don't practice the very actual skill of being able to hear somebody, where they're at um, and connect that with something inside of you, then you are uncoordinated. You have a lack of a daily skill. Uncoordinated empathy. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, I feel like live performance in its greatest Moments and its greatest versions of what it can be is a training ground for empathy mm. because to get something from it you, you are in a you are somehow in a safe role and environment because you're often just viewing that you can connect with and, and things are like turned up and crafted in such a way that you should connect with something or somebody. Over the course of the event or the show, and feel for them and with them, even though it's not you, and so in that way you get to practice
0: this daily skill. Yeah, but I think it goes the other. Like I think that 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 goes both ways as well. Like you, like you said, as, as viewing, like from the audience point, but also as the perform. Like when when you're performing, because I mean, less more and more we're breaking that fourth wall now, but so often. There's a safety in performing that you're in if you're if you're not making a show you're not part of a show that that is breaking that fourth wall then you're kind of safe inside mm. the fourth wall and you don't have to you can very easily not be aware of that exchange and you can not be giving. Ah,
1: uh, so the performer has to be as empathetic, has to come with that emotional labour in the same way if they if that's are what they're yeah if the that's what they're
0: seeking yes yeah. yeah. Mm. it's invite, like you're inviting it yes
1: yeah. and if you're inviting it then you also need to be taking part in
0: yeah it. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to empathize with me but I'm going to turn my back on you and just not give a shit about <laughs> you while I do it how do you how do you take care of that when you're performing I think I guess it's like you said it's if you're if you're practicing it mm. If you're practicing it, it will it will be there. And it's, if you're, yeah, it's like those people who you know. If you don't practice it in the studio and then you step on stage and expect it to happen, it's not gonna. Like, I mean, you you know, there are people who can pull it. Who we we all know that we something we shift up a notch when we step on stage, but yeah. particularly when you're working with other dancers, like. We all, I think we've all been in those situations where someone steps on stage and you're like, whoa, that's not how you were doing it in rehearsal. And it shifts everything on stage. Mm -hmm. And I I, I think there's a, there's a sense of accountability and accountability of your, like, to being accountable to yourself and to your audience and to your fellow performers, directors, of being in your integrity that, like, you know, Am I working to my best today? And that thing of like you know, some days your best might be shit, and that's fine. <laughs> like you, <laughs> but if you're in your integrity and you're holding yourself accountable each time you step into it, then you stay alive in that exchange. I think, and then you're practicing all of the things, and it's com- like there's like so many. You know, sometimes you need to practice getting the leg in the right spot more than the empathy and sometimes you need to practice the exchange with the audience more than the leg.
1: Yeah. And one is a pathway to the other. Yeah. Be- sometimes before the thing can be felt, like before the character can come to life, the costume needs to be put on. Something yeah. like that and then you, you stroke the fake beard and then you, <laughs> suddenly you feel much more wise. Yeah. Like... Yeah. There's, there's a saying that you will not... Rise to the level of your dreams but you will fall to the level of your training and I'm in no way going to ask anybody to believe that I train in <laughs> as much as I know that I can and I should and it would benefit me because I'm not just a bit distracted yeah. by like all the other possibilities of all the other ways I can be in the world than just being a training machine but I also do believe what you said that there's a and integrity and level of responsibility that that there's, there's so many facets to doing the thing that you can't wait until opening night <laughs> to do the thing. Yeah. Um, any uh, epiphanies that you would like to end on, Gabe? Epiphanies? Mm. Insights? Quotable?
0: I called my dog Epiphany <laughs> many years ago. Epi, and they just epi epi and then your dog just came whenever you called Epiphany <laughs> <laughs> It came yeah no, did you just had to think it you had a little no um look I think I think last year was a big year of change like 2016 across the board like for good for bad everyone has different everyone's <laughs> approach or opinion is different but It was a year of change, and I think moving to Tassie was kind of the final big change for me. And I feel like this year I'm ready. I feel like things are settling, and I may still... Like, it will still be all over the place, and it will still be crazy, but I feel like I'm coming to a place where I'm... There's a, I don't know, a quiet comfort or confidence in mm. that I feel like I'm on the right path and I don't know where that path is going and I don't really care mm. Like I'm quite, I guess I was using that word aspiration before and I have aspirations but that I don't know that I don't need them mm. I don't think, I think I think
1: you're referring to Zen <laughs> <laughs> one of the students before like drop and give me Zen
0: <laughs> drop and give me Zen but yeah, I um, I trust the path that I'm on, I think, and I, I, th- I feel like I'm in a good place and I have awesome people around me and I, I think that's... I can't ask for much more than having awesome people around me and being happy with where I am right now and being excited for wherever the hell it is I'm going. <laughs> so, everyone come to Tassie and hang out. <laughs> Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Matt.